Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. We have spent three and a half years going through Rick Riordan's extended Percy Jackson universe books. And today we are going to be talking about the second episode of the Disney Plus television show, I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. We are going to camp, everyone. Stick around. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yay! Welcome back, everybody, to Season 1, Episode 2 of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Emotional mental breakdown as well as content breakdown. I'm Erica, joined as always by my co-host Carter. Hi, it's me. I'm Carter. And today we have a special brand new to Seaweed Brain guest sitting in our guest chair to help us break down this episode. Everybody, welcome Iko. Hi, Iko. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. All the way from Colombia? Like, we really coordinated time zones for this. Yeah, that was a whole week of back and forths, and I'm very glad that we were able to find a time. (laughs) Yay! Will you tell the people your relationship with Percy Jackson and also your relationship, let's say, with television as a medium? Oh my gosh. Well, in the most general of senses, I'm a screenwriter and a film critic. I write for ScreenSpec. Uh, You should go check us out. We're really cool. And I've been writing professionally for about three years now. I love TV. It's the incredible uh, medium that I've chosen to call my home uh, as horrible and incredible and tumultuous as it may be. (laughs) But yeah, uh, that's what I do professionally. And as for our baby boy, Percy Jackson, that was the book series that made me want to become an author and a writer. So I love it with everything that I am. I've been reading it since I was like probably 12. That's saying a lot. But yeah, it's genuinely been like that one show or that one book series that I keep coming back to. And like I got everybody hooked on. I've been waiting as long as you have for this show to come out. Like I genuinely cannot explain this emotions that are coming out of my body every time that I think about it. And I'm just like, thank the gods that we're here and thank the gods that we have this show now. Yes! And since this is the episode where we are going to camp and we're going to meet Ms. Annabeth Chase, how do you feel about Persebeth? I'm a huge shipper. I love them. I think they're perfect and they can do no wrong. (laughs) They can do no wrong! Not even sorry. Like, I keep talking about it as, like, that, like, red string of fate. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the vibe that they give off. Musubi? They they just, like, always come back to each other, no matter where they are, and I love that for them. It's going to hurt a lot to go through this journey with them again. (laughs) Thank you, Aiko. Before we dive into discussing the plot and the content, we have a few new patrons from the last time we recorded an episode. So thank you, Rose, Luna, and Kathia for joining our Patreon. If you would like to join our Patreon, it is now December, which means there are 11 special episodes. If you join right now, you get 11 special episodes on our favorite books and movies that we have talked about. And starting next week, we're going to do our live watch parties on Patreon. So you might want to join us over there. 
patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. All right. This episode. (laughs) 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 They just get better and better. Back when we were first thinking about as like a thought exercise between Carter and I, how would we structure this book as like a series of eight episodes? One of the central problems is like, how do you get in and out of camp fast enough to get onto the rest of the action? Because obviously like the quest Mm -hmm. is the meat of the book. And there's so much that happens that everything gets really episodic as soon as you're out on the quest. Each new person you meet can be one episode. But there's so much that happens when you're at camp. The question of how long you linger there is pretty crucial to the pacing of a series. And in the musical, they spend the entire first act basically at camp. But for this, like get in and out of camp in one episode, this episode is jam-packed. And I personally love it. I think that in our breakdown, this was roughly the conclusion that we came to that it would have to be one episode but that we were also not totally sure how they were going to be able to thread that needle only that they had to somehow and i think they did through the use (laughs) of much voiceover over establishing shots of camp there is not a silent moment there is always something happening someone explaining something relationships being formed characters being introduced etc so it works really well yeah i think for me it was this very interesting like you said dilemma of how do we fast track through this while also staying really grounded and making sure that not only an audience that knows what's going on, but also a new audience that might n- have never read the books understands exactly what's going on and what's being set up and why it's being set up. In my opinion, the episode could have been like 15 minutes longer and mm-hmm. I would have been like, that's cool. I still feel like I needed that time in between episode one and episode two to like actually settle into this feeling of dread and this feeling of like, oh, everything that we knew is not actually true and we're moving into this new world of heroes and monsters and gods and legends and you know how does one grapple all of that whilst also grappling with the fact that you know you just lost your mom in this insane like freak accident slash monster fight see like it's just a lot to swallow and digest and sit with and i think that the episode does a lot with the time that it has Mm-hmm. In the sense that we're never left scrambling to figure what else to do or what else to explain. It's very much like we are guided through what camp is mm-hmm. and we are very clearly told this is what it is. This is where we are. And now like this is where we're going, which I mm-hmm. thought was really, really genius. Yeah. But yeah. I I would have loved to spend more time in camp. I think that they built beautiful sets. Mm-hmm. Alberta has never looked more beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, the thought of how much they put in for literally, like, essentially one and a half episodes. Building all of those cabins, all of those camp shirts, all of the extras that they had to get involved. But we last left off with Percy groggily, eyes concussed, opening to a blurry sunrise image of Chiron and a bunch of campers and whispers. And you can hear Annabeth saying, he could be the one. And then when we get to this episode, we open up on everybody. You drool when you sleep. Would we call this the teaser? Is this the teaser line of this episode? I would say so. Because it's it's very cheeky. I love it. Especially because in this television episode, we actually take kind of a long break from Annabeth. We don't meet her, meet her yes. for kind of a while. It's not until after the bathroom scene, right? Mm-hmm. With the toilet explosion. Yeah. Which is different from the book. The reveal of Annabeth is given a lot more 
drama, a lot more build-up anticipation. And I think that this this setup where we like have her clearly like flashes of light so you can see her fully, get the one line that is iconic, that lives in fame in everyone's memory, and then and then step back and allow the anticipation to build. To me, Hook is right. It's strong. It creates such a strong, effective sense of tension throughout the rest of the episode for this particular character to come back. <laughs> I love it too, because it's very much like we, as people who've read the books, we know what that means and we know what's coming and we can feel that like anticipation growing. And finally, when she's properly introduced, it's this like satisfaction of, oh my gosh, she's here. Like she's finally here. Like she's mated. Maybe, I don't know what the experience has been like for someone maybe watching the show without having read the books first, but I hope that it's very much like this. Ooh, who are you? What is this? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like what's going to happen? How do you come into play? Yes. What do you know? And clearly she knows a lot. What do you know? Like, I, mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, we really want to get the sense that like Annabeth knows something that we don't know. Yeah. And the brilliance of using this line to open up this episode, I think, is that the last episode was so dramatic. There were humorous moments, Grover providing a lot of comedic relief, but we just came off of his mom dying, him fighting, really fighting his first official monster, if you don't count Mrs. Dodds. So to be able to open up on like a big laugh line, I forgot this line was funny, you know, because I see this line <laughs> as like the mantle on which Persebeth stands, you know, like it is not, it is not funny to me. Yeah, no, 100%. It is crucial to history. Yeah. It is a watershed moment in my life. Yeah. But that's also funny. And so when we were watching with our friends and everybody like burst out laughing, I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant writing. <laughs> and then we go into the scene with Grover and Percy as Percy is waking up. We have to talk about the design, the set design. That the is the most design. beautiful house I've ever seen. It's this like very cabiny, cozy camp kind of house, but at the same time has the most gorgeous stained glass you have ever seen in your life. It looks like Osipov, Vladimir. <gasps> is that not Carter. to you? Oh my gosh. Carter, would you like to explain to the people who didn't go to our high school who this man is? <laughs> Vladimir Osipov is an architect from the late 20th century whose design philosophy was about trying to find creative new ways to integrate nature into the structure of buildings. So at our high school, there were two structures designed by Osipov. One of them is a chapel that is on a natural spring pond such that you can see like fish and lily pads and something from like one edge of the building and you can hear the gurgle of water everywhere. The idea generally is that you like use lots of big glass panes and sliding doors and other ways to integrate nature in and have lots of light allow the structure of the land before the building to really be still visible and a part of the way that the architecture is developed. But those are the vibes I'm getting from this where the big house is like jutting out onto the like the lake. Long Island Sound. I love that. I think that's really interesting. My immediate thought was the juxtaposition of churches and Me how too. stained glass was used yes. to like signal houses of worship and the yes. juxtaposition of this being like a cabin where a god mm -hmm. is like sentenced to uh, kind of like imprisonment. I, <laughs> like, that that is exactly was my thought too. Because what stained glass, obviously the first thought you're going to have is, yeah. is a chapel, is a, is a place of worship. Yeah. As Percy like exits and goes onto the porch, 
the porch is where you see like these beautiful stained glass like walls and it's like it's almost like a like an open air but like semi-enclosed slayful mm-hmm. giving husbands you know it really is giving husbands exactly. on the porch moment um <laughs> with all the candelabras everywhere this is like the little spot where mr d and Kyron like to sit immersed in this stained glass it makes you think about them as these like strangely holy figures but like you said the juxtaposition of it being attached mm-hmm. to this little cozy house they're supposed to be yes. these like figures that are unattainable and like unapproachable and yet they're like camp counselors and they thread the needle too because the glass is like only some of the glass is stained some of it is just giving you regular paneling to look a little bit more like a cabin the wood looks a bit worn like the paint is not perfectly Mm -hmm. new the um way that a lot of the doors are open please come in but also don't exactly (laughs) exactly and like the tones are so like warm there are these like kind of light purples and like really really rich greens spring tones jewel tones almost like not even jewel tones like more approachable than that the color i think is so important because you were saying carter with the ossipop thing like we're immersed in the natural world of camp looking out onto the lake like we're very much feeling the pagan forces of nature like involved in camp because we're going to start to meet some dryads in this episode but also there's a moment in the lightning thief where percy is like nothing should be colorful the world should be gray and dark because there's no more sally jackson in it i don't understand and so to like come out onto this porch where everything is so beautiful and magical but percy to just like not be able to handle that to have no excitement about where he is just like pure focus on i need to talk to my dad it's crazy to think that internally percy's life is over and yet it has just opened up to like an entire new world of magic and possibility and nuance and like new experiences and new everything. Yeah. We have this conversation with Grover while Percy is still in the bedroom um, and Grover's in mm-hmm. his orange camp shirt now. He saved the Minotaur horn for Percy. Which looks humongous. That moment of like, was everything that just happened a dream? Well, there's the Minotaur horn, so I guess not. He's like, I guess my dad is here. Let me go talk to my dad. Oh, gosh. And you're like, oh, no, he doesn't understand. (laughs) Percy is mad at Grover. Percy is mad at the dad, doesn't know what's going on. It makes perfect sense, though, that he would be like, the first thing I need to do is go find my dad because me being here was so important that my mom sacrificed her life. I need to talk Mm -hmm. to my dad period full stop he goes out onto the porch that we have described in great detail there's candelabras everywhere and jason manzoukas is sitting in a chair in a leopard print shirt with a diet coke if that isn't book accuracy i don't know what is that man has a can of diet coke we paid coca-cola so that (laughs) we being the fandom at large disney paid (laughs) coca-cola so that we could have a diet coke can sitting here that's brilliant that's Mm -hmm. filmmaking we should talk about mr d I love this man. I will lay down my life. I think he could have been way crazier, but he was perfect. No notes. It's great casting. Phenomenal casting. The fact of this person's history as an actor, the fact that you know him as notably Derek from The Good Place, but also as... I was just re- uh, I was just watching Invincible season two is like coming out now so like Rex Splode is also like the top of my mind. Oh my god, I forgot! Amazing voice cast for that show, but the fact that he has that history to him allows him to deliver a performance that, in a lot of ways, is mostly pretty understated. But for you to understand the idea of Dionysus as like having layers and layers and layers of power and scariness and emotional range. And uncertainty that is always like about to burst forth. Exactly. Like you as a viewer are always waiting for him to go like full unhinged Derek. Yeah. God of Madness <laughs> vibes. Exactly. It's giving you God of Madness, but like washed up, 
apathetic. If you make him really mad, something's going to happen. It's very effective to me. Casting for a show like this is such a fascinating project because I would say next to Luke, this is the character that you have to cast knowing that like you have to get an actor who's willing to do almost nothing in this season, just be like a guest star, but whose mm -hmm. character grows and expands so much, hoping that you get like three more seasons down the line where you can see that actor like bring everything that they're capable of to the table. Mm -hmm. So I'm just so glad that Jason Manzuka signed on for this. And I think it was The Tonight Show that he was on last week. Yes, he was plugging the show. I was gagged. He plugged the show and he was like, yeah, I had no idea how big the fandom was. Like he knew what Percy Jackson was when he signed on, but he had no idea what a big deal it was. And he said, I think it was a niece or one of his friend's kids was like, here are my notes on Mr. D. And this is what you need yes. to know. Because this character has a lot going on. And <laughs> Jason Manzuka said that those notes that that younger girl gave him were like really good and very helpful and the best notes he's ever gotten. Shout out to her. Thank you very much for all your hard work. Thank you for your service. The introductory scene is basically all added in. It's not in the books. It is so, so funny. The gag, of course, is that Dionysus is telling Percy that he is Percy's father. Like, Percy shows up mad as hell, demanding to see his father, and Dionysus' response is to prank him. Son. The delivery is incredible. This works on many levels. What we're doing here, first of all, is we're setting up the idea of quests for gods. This episode, we have so much exposition to do, and so to get the first set of exposition about how questing works in this universe out of the way through this deeply, deeply funny bit, the idea that Dionysus would be petty and unglamorous, and that this is the way he's going to exercise his power over a child is to pull a prank as a way of securing his, his like, respect and deference, as opposed to just standing up and being like, you need to speak differently to me, young man. I'm very, very powerful. Beautiful. It's gorgeous, because it still is, like, vindictive and controlling and disrespectful, mm -hmm. but so flavorful. Yeah. While setting up the entire premise of the book, I mean, mm -hmm. this episode especially, I think, really gives me the vibe that I know to be true, that they had all of lockdown to work on this script. <laughs> they were storyboarding <laughs> in 2020 when we were reading The Lightning Thief and we were all learning how to knit and everything. They were like, how do we fit The Lightning Thief into an eight episode TV show? It's giving the level of precision that time and thought and Rick Riordan's presence was able to give them, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that whatever comes after this might not be quite as efficient and that's okay you know because like <laughs> to go from having like three years to write this season to like maybe having like nine months to write the next one and the ones after that they might not be quite as efficient but they don't have to be because they don't have as much to set up you know yeah, yeah we don't have to deal with the same degree of exposition and world building in the future yeah persassy yeah. Persassi, anybody? Persassi. One order of Persassi, please. <laughs> He's ready to fight Mr. D. Let Walker cook, okay? Literally let Walker cook. No script. Just let him improvise. All of it. Just let him go. You know? <laughs> Just let him do his thing. <laughs> Peter Johnson, Percy Jackson. I said that, but did you? This scene is delightful. Walker is playing it so serious and earnest. Like, he's looking <laughs> heartbroken. Like, even as he's, like, getting irritated with... Mr. D, he is still delivering strong emotional beats. We have Aryan over here frantically trying to play guide, but experiencing extreme gastrointestinal distress, trying to like stop Mr. D from like playing this joke, but also being unwilling to stand up to him. The way that the scene resolves itself is Kyron shows up. Kyron, who we of course have experienced as Mr. Brunner, whisks everything away, ends the charade. That exchange was also very funny between Kyron and Mr. D, where where Jason is like, oh. Could be his dad you don't know and and Karen's like well are you they're husbands I really you know 
They really yes. are. That is the energy. I mean, they've been living together, taking care of all of these kids for so long. They're in a common law marriage at this point, at the very least. Yeah. yeah. The municipality recognizes that they have the same insurance, but the state doesn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Grover really wants to tag along as Kyron is going to walk Percy out, but he can't. Kyron says, Grover, you stay here. Mm-hmm. And Grover's so sad. Arian is emoting. Yeah. It, I, I feel goat so bad for, for Grover. Maybe everyone has heard the story at this point, but if you haven't, Glenn Turman filmed the entire series like riding a horse. Every time he is in full centaur mode, he was riding an actual horse that they then like CGI'd his torso forward so that they could get the movement of the horse right. And also because Glenn Turman just happens to be an award-winning rodeo cowboy. He handpicked the horse that he would use for filming. I'm literally not making this up. Um, <laughs> this is fate. Yeah, he chose the horse that would be like good around kids, good around the cast, and he rode a horse while they were filming this. From here, we walk to camp. Friends, Romans, countrymen, this is Camp Half Blood. How do we feel? How how are we doing? Are we all are we all okay? I've never had more FOMO in my entire life. It looks so similar to what I would have pictured. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it isn't exactly what my brain made up, but it is very similar to what I would have expected from a camp. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you are a listener of Mike Schubert's podcast, you've already heard me rant about this. I am fascinated by the decision to have all the different activities designed like the spokes on a wheel coming out of the central little, like it's like a big circle, right? So like we're walking Mm -hmm. away from the big house and then we enter into this big open field. And in the middle of the Mm -hmm. field is a statue, which I think it is super safe to assume is Hercules with the Nemean lion fur. I paused this scene and I went through it basically frame by frame to look at the setup of camp. It's not a real statue that exists as far as I know, but it's definitely inspired by other Hercules statues. So we have the ultimate demigod, right? Which is questionable and something that we're going to think about in the Titans mm-hmm. curse season. But we have like the central, like the capital D demigod inspiration to think about as we're like doing our activities and coming out mm-hmm. of this central little circle are a bunch of different paths like Iko said with mm-hmm. little banners and I swear to god each banner has a symbol for one of the different Olympians that has to do with that activity like there's a trident banner next to the path that leads to the little canoe pond um, and there's mm-hmm. like an arrow next to the archery field um, and then there's also we see the sword fighting like this little like semi-circle open air arena and it's just brilliant because like the oh, the idea that we're about to talk about about glory and like what does it mean to be a demigod we're setting up this idea that like oh it's all about fighting it's about being hercules it's about gaining as much glory as possible and percy Mm -hmm. as a character is going Mm -hmm. to spend five seasons of this show fighting against that notion i think what also sort of struck me really hard was this idea of glory is servitude to the gods they're all a part of your father's world the scene the one thing i will say about camp is that it is not how i imagined it specifically because it is and we're gonna keep harping on this it is what it is canadian yes 100 (laughs) yeah i mean yeah conditional on us all being like camp half-blood is in long island i did not expect it to be a magical verdant forest with like ponds and beauty and biodiversity but it looks beautiful where is the pollution like if you were to magic long island into something that is like nice to the pacific northwest with wildlife oh yeah then it might look like this which is to say it might look like the pacific northwest (laughs) if you can magic a different ecosystem like that's the one you would pick 
Right. Yeah, I would choose the PN dubs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like one piece of official art that like is in the back of, I want to say like the demigod files that has an image of mm-hmm. camp. And it's like yeah. the cabins like all in a circle. And there's like, it's just in like an open green field. There's no trees and there's a fire in the yeah. middle. But in yes. this, there's trees everywhere. There are open fires like all over the place. Hestia. Yeah. Hello. And the campers are all milling around and it's very like cozy and a little bit spooky, you know? Like it's a little dark. Yeah. The forest ceiling is thick, you know? Yeah, yeah. It looks like we're in the wilderness. Did we clarify this yet? The symbols? I don't think we talked about them. The symbols are invented. They are made up for the show. Yes. Dan Schatz's childhood best friend, if you're listening to this right now, shout out to you for giving us that answer. Kyron is doing head of camp by like dragging Percy into the Hermes cabin and being like, all right, everybody be nice to him. And there's like one moment of silence. And then everybody goes back to talking as he settles down into the cabin, which is beautiful by the way, and huge and full of people. It looks very warm and lived in, cozy. Percy gets to a little little cot and he pulls out of his backpack the last thing that Sally gave to him. <laughs> his blue candy. The blue candy come out and right before the commercial break, we meet. Oh no. <sighs> wow. Oh no. We meet Luke. Oh no. Scar is looking right. Hair is looking right towering over walker but looking approachable nice he's cool he's friendly you think maybe he isn't going to be friendly based on his you know like brooding demeanor but then he says nice things there there are two seconds of like being afraid of him and specifically percy says like if you're gonna mess with me do it later but then he's nice even though he's tall even though he has a scar on his face which might be scary no He is nice. He has a relaxed manner of speaking and vocal fry to to make you feel at ease. He's laid back. He's chill. He's giving SoCal. He is! (gasps) Listeners, let me ask a question to which I do not have an answer. Yeah. How are we, for the next 10 years, not going to root for Luke? (laughs) When Charlie Bushnell is playing Luke. That's our little brother. That's a nice guy who has experienced trauma at the hands of Lin-Manuel Miranda and wants to overhaul the system. And how are we not supposed to support him? Is that not a story to root for? Is that not (laughs) our protagonist? I hate to say if there's like a mixed Asian person, like I'm going to root for them. And Charlie Bushnell, like I will be rooting for you. Literally, it's so (laughs) bad because, you know, movie Luke, I could just be like, yeah, no, he's just white. He was blonde. Right? He's he's smarmy looking. Like movie Luke, there was never a second where I was like, this person feels compassionate, feels dropped in, feels trustworthy. He was always giving grease, smarm, grime. Jock. No disrespect to that actor who I'm sure is a perfectly lovely person. No, Jake Abel is amazing, but he looks like he plays water polo. Parenthesis derogatory. Yes. Derogatory. Charlie looks like he plays water polo. Parenthesis positive. I would have to agree. You, you, you really... Spell that out so that clearly. The That's the spectrum. Listener, do you understand? Because I, I followed that journey. <laughs> Luke Castellan in the movies looked smarmy. Luke Castellan in this TV show looks like my little cousin. Yes. That's correct. But it's okay. You know, that's a bridge we will cross in six more episodes. For now, <laughs> so glad that 
Percy is making a friend. The shot of the two of them shaking hands, they're alternating between the close-ups of the two of them, and then we have a shot of, like, Luke leaning down where, like, his head literally can't even fit in the frame because he's so much taller. <laughs> so he's shaking Walker Walker's, so like, hand. It's so cute. It's so warm. Oh, God, you guys. I don't know. This is going to be really hard for us. This is going to be really hard. Yeah, my one thought was the betrayal is going to betray. <laughs> <laughs> the betrayal is so going to be bad, man. I'm, I will be participating in it. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm going to be betraying them you too. You'll be complicit in the crimes. Look me a ticket on the Princess Andromeda. <laughs> I'm going with my little cousin. We got a family reunion to go to where they're just going to like dip. <laughs> Support the cakey. You know what I mean? Woo. <laughs> okay. I think it's time for a break. Commercial for the show, commercial for us. We'll see you in a bit. Would we say that was the end of Act One? Dang, this episode is packed. This episode is packed. Yeah, we're we're like nine minutes in. Act two, we're back from commercial we're with Grover. It's night. We're searching. And then we get <laughs> we get the tree scene. We got um, Tish, head of costume design. Tish Monahan, Emmy Award. We get Grover walking over to the tree woman who is some sort of unspecified maternal figure for him. Maybe it is his literal mm-hmm. mom. I like the idea that he has all kinds of different woodsy maternal figures they don't believe in the nuclear family out there exactly they do the commune they do the commune the the point of the scene is for grover to go to the council of cloven elders which i think they refer to slightly differently it's like the cloven council whatever we all know what we're referring to passage through the trees oh yeah bridge to terabithia found dead in a ditch chronicles of narnia dead in a ditch this is nature magic well for now greta we love you we'll we'll be seeing you in however many years but for now, dead in a ditch. It's beautiful. I really wish we got to see more of this scene. I hope that they release some, like, you know, uncut footage. Yeah. Because I know that they filmed more. During the, like, very yes. first press conference day where, like, the kids were there with the showrunners, Arian mm-hmm. said that he filmed for, like, a whole day where he was Whoa. speaking in English and all of these satyrs were bleeding at him. And he said, by the end of the day, it was like I could understand everything they were saying. <laughs> yeah, I hope we get to see that sometime. It doesn't need Literally, to be it doesn't need to be color graded. It can just, you know, just put it out there. I feel like I understand those like Snyder cut people now, God forbid. Like not not in general and not the way they like live their lives, but the idea of basing your personality, your hopes and your dreams around the idea that there might be multiple versions of the thing that you like and one of them is really really long and does not have the careful eye of an editor that we respect and crave and desire. In addition, I understand it. I feel seen. We need the bleeding. Where Where is the bleeding? Yeah. Bleeding love. I miss the deleted or extended scenes from like DVDs. I think that needs to come back. <gasps> yes. Yeah. Or like at least just like release scenes to the YouTube channel. You know what I mean? Like I don't care. I just want to see it. You know? Yeah. I just want to experience what it could have been. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. I do think the only real criticism anybody could possibly have of this show is that it is packed. The reason I don't subscribe to that criticism is because this is a show for kids and these episodes need to be well under an hour in order to be family-friendly, period. But if you are one of those people that's like, wow, I wished we got to see like the full Council of Cloven Elder scene, easy fix, release the footage. Give us a DVD or like a Blu-ray extended yes. or what. We'll pay. We'll oh. pay. Like that's not Unfortunately, even... we will pay. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the kids don't care. The adults with the credit cards... They do, and they will pay. You know, Disney, I'm telling you right now, I will pay. Like, I'm yes. sure there are kids out there. Every single 10-year-old who still knows what a DVD is will we'll make it happen. Well, DVDs are vintage now. 
yeah, I don't think they're kids anymore. Um, <laughs> I think we're sad 20-year-olds. Don't you think you could see, like, Urban Outfitters releasing a, like, vintage Blu-ray DVD of Percy yes. Jackson? Ooh. Percy Jackson will be the new Lana Del Rey born to die. Do you know what I mean? Are we all following the analogy? <laughs> yes, it's Polaroid camera, record player, Blu-ray DVD of Percy Jackson and the Olympians with the extended cut scene of Grover and the yes. Council of Cloven Elders. Precisely. This scene does lead us immediately into another one with Grover. The, the motivation for all of this is that Grover has questions about how Sally disappeared in the golden shower, right? Gets clarity from the council and then goes to talk to Chiron and Dionysus about it. This scene is giving extreme... Husbands. It's giving husbands, correct. These are husbands. And Grover confronts them about the fact that we now know that Sally isn't dead. Bum bum. It's dramatic. We get um, Arian giving a delightful uh, delivery of the line, squishy, oh, squishy like, like an old banana. <laughs> Referring to a person dying. <laughs> I would like to use this as a frame of reference for how Grover has changed and improved since the original book of The Lightning Thief. Grover used to be all enchiladas, enchiladas, I'm a vegetarian, give me an enchilada. And now Grover is, I thought when a human would die, they would turn squishy like an old banana. And that is a very different character. They are both funny, but one of them is not real and the other one is real. You know? <laughs> yeah. I agree. In the book, when when Percy is fighting the Minotaur on the hill, Grover is like half passed out moaning food and or enchiladas. TV show Grover's not doing that. We're getting the same font, but the font is saying things that make more sense. I believe it's Mr. D who says here this line that like powerful forces are at work that have laid waste to the earth before and will again. First of all, Mr. D, he's giving God at this, you know, he's giving like authoritarian, mm -hmm. don't mistake me just because I'm drinking Diet Coke. I am still a God and I'm still in charge of you, especially Grover, yes. you know, as a satyr. And then to cut right from this scene to a little dream sequence, you know, having just mentioned these powerful forces that are at work, I think is so smart. This yeah. is Percy in the sand. Right? This is the Agrabah. <laughs> yes. It's in the sand in front of a little fire. We have this like gorgeous, like deep velvety like purplish cloudscape behind him yes the dream sky yes yes the dream sky the magic sky as the voice comes nick borain voice in dream credited not as chronos but as voice in dream i think they just kept it like that to keep the mystery going maybe they'll reveal it later on in the season but i think as of right now no one's supposed to know we're all supposed to think that this is hades so that the audience thinks that we're going into this believing that we know who the bad guy is. And then it's just immediately like, nope. Mm -mm. That is what is so excellent about this series is that you have no yeah. idea who the bad guy is. You think it's Hades and then you realize it's not. And then you think it's Kronos and then you're like, wait, but is it? Or is the bad guy Lin-Manuel Miranda? Or Lin-Manuel Miranda. Correct. That's a good tie into what happens when he wakes up. We get basically a full day montage of Luke teaching him everything guiding him through everything training montage it works as a training montage but it is also doing a very good job of the secondary effect which is creating the relationship that we need luke and percy big brother montage believably mm -hmm. connected that like luke is offering things to him is being warm is going out of his way and that percy would trust him i find it to be quite effective so somebody was complaining when we were watching the episode with um, our friends that there isn't a percy being good at things I disagree. He's Percy should not be at good at things anything. yet. <laughs> Just water and sword and sarcasm. Literally. <laughs> it is true that this is where in the book we had a scene where Percy 
is like learning sword fighting from Luke, learns this like disarming maneuver that ends up being sort of a recurring thing throughout the books. It got cut. I think that's correct. I think that the show is better, smoother, faster, tighter. Without that, we need Percy to be bad at a lot of things, and we're going to get him being good at things, specifically in Capture the Flag. Clean. Precise. This is also a good way for us to see more of camp. Like, if he yeah. tries out all these different things and is bad at them, it's like, oh, we get to go to the archery field. Oh, we get to go to the forge. How fun. You know, fan service. Yeah. Yes. We we set it up, the montage, we should mention, by Luke explaining basically all of the demigod specificities and different perceptions. We get that, like, are you having a bad dream? That's part of being a demigod. You're just one of us. Bad dreams, dyslexia, ADHD, ADHD. seeing things that other people can't see. All of these things being tied up together, we get... Luke complaining about dad, I think, for the first time. The framing is great. I will say, like, there's something so excellent. Like, whenever Percy and Luke are talking, even when we have the shots on just one of them, the camera is angled so that you know who is taller. (laughs) Yeah. Constantly. Like, the camera's always pointing a little bit down at Walker and a little bit up at Charlie. (laughs) Yes, and it sets up their power dynamic. 100%, 100%. It's a great detail. Even though Luke is being nice to Percy, we still know who has more experience here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And who could judo flip you in a second, you know? I believe the line is, Hermes is my father. That doesn't matter. We're all on the same team here. Interesting. Why don't you like your dad, Luke? Hmm. I like this even more now because of how we started this episode with Percy being so pissed off at his dad that now he's getting to relate to someone who's been here longer than he has that has all this experience and is still pissed at his dad. You know, it's this like universal understanding of like, oh yeah, the gods exist, but we also like do not like them a lot, even though they're technically our parents. You know, as much as we're talking about a power imbalance and a power dynamic, they're on the same page about this one thing. And that's how Luke is able to like burrow himself into Percy's brain and like Mm -hmm. make him trust him so easily. It's like we both have this like commonality of we don't know, like our dads suck. Yeah. (laughs) That's how like we relate to each other. And I think it's really, really interesting that they did that so smoothly. You could call that manipulative, but I don't think that Luke is being manipulative here. He, no, I think he I just, really likes I think Percy. he genuinely yeah. believes that Percy is going to be on the same side and that this is what's going to be best for him. I believe with everything in my heart that he would have flipped to Luke's side had he not gone on this quest with Annabeth and Grover and had this like experience of, you know what I mean? Like if he had stayed in camp, just like brooding and sort of like- And just hanging angry, out with Luke. Like, and just hanging out with Luke, it would have been like a no brainer. He would have been, he would have gone with him. Right? He would have switched to the dark side. Can you imagine also how it feels for Luke? I've never thought about this. How it feels for Luke to watch two of his closest friends and, like, the people he got to camp with go on a quest with that other kid, you know? Yeah. Like, watching Annabeth and Grover go off with Percy, who is now the main character, and being like, what the hell? Like, whoa. Yeah. Glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember remember the extent of the desire for Luke to take... Or, like, to get Annabeth to go with him. He kept trying. Right? He wanted her to go with him. Yeah. And I think that it's very interesting, this idea of, I need to get Percy to deliver this object, and yet the person that is going on this quest with him is the person that I'm trying to sort of convince to to come with me instead. And yet they both bond in a way that he was never able to bond with Annabeth. It's a different relationship. Yeah. Like, Luke... 
was always like older brother, uncle, dad, something, something in that mix. Weird and Verse of Madness, it could be Zeus. It could be. This is not what they're going to do. But like the like Spider-Verse adjacent take on the Weird and Verse of Madness would make the true villain, AU, Percy, Luke, Annabeth, teamed up together <gasps> to deliver the victory to Kronos. Yeah. I don't think Grover would turn. I think that Annabeth no. and Percy would have turned with Luke. I don't think Grover would have. If Kronos said, we need more small farms, Grover would immediately go to oh, him. Grover, if Kronos was like, well, yeah. the Green New Deal is part of our rebuilding of Western civilization. Sustainable farming, yeah, baby. Grover would yeah, do you think Grover was like an anti-growther? In, in this AU, maybe. I can <laughs> <Definitely>. see it. <laughs> Gosh, that would be so fun. I would read that as a graphic novel so hard. We need to talk about Clarice. The introduction of Clarice, as Luke is explaining glory and saying it's like this stuff that attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger, scarier, more important. People, they listen closer when you talk, they work harder to be your friend, and they think twice about messing with you, and then bam, Clarice entrance with her Aries cabin cronies. Oh, Dior. Girl. It's sickening. An icon. She is mothering hard. Her hair in this episode. Literally perfect at all times. It's giving, just because I'm an Aries cabin camper. Doesn't mean I can't lay apart and give you definition. I want to know what they're using in camp. I want to (laughs) know, like, where are you guys getting this product? Someone said entire budget went to curl creams on this show. (laughs) Leave that wholeheartedly. I'm like, yes, it makes sense. I understand. The hair department popped off aggressively so should we talk about the training montage we're training we're montaging is this canonically lee fletcher do we know for sure no they wouldn't want to cast certain like they're not going to cast selena beauregard until they have to you know what i mean yeah Uh, i think that's right yeah yeah they're not going to cast charles beckendorf until they have to yeah that's true charles is not in the montage you gotta pay extra for named characters there you go Mm -hmm. different contract they do still choose to name chris even though they like never directly address him at any point in the episode. Um. That is Chris Rodriguez. He is around. Love that. We also get to see the dining hall. It's like totally not how I pictured it. And it is beautiful. This like open air gazebo with the ionic columns. And it's like right in the woods again, like interwoven with nature, you know? Correct. We explain the burnt offerings and then Percy. Immediately afterwards, he goes off. It is later, the sun is set. He is off in the woods, face only lit by a small fire in a can, as he no. does his own burnt offering. But the burnt offering is not to a god, it is to his mother. He is Sally Jackson's son, burning the blue food because they have to burn like what matters most to you. They said that. Yes. They like the smell of begging, <laughs> etc. Yeah. I cannot emphasize how teeny tiny Walker looks in this giant dark forest that is that he is two apples tall he is teeny teeny tiny little baby the first thing i thought of was that scene in lilo and stitch uh, about two-thirds into the movie (gasps) when stitch Stitch goes into the forest and he says i'm a lost i'm lost and i question my will to live every time i think about that scene and this is that you know he's lost he's tiny all alone except he's not because what he's saying in the speech is that this time is different this is better than every other place I've been before because I have a friend. Hope you're sitting down because I think I made a friend. And the friend is Luke. <gasps> this scene is everything to me. It's so clean. It's such it's such an emotionally affecting way to let us know where Percy is at at this moment. Yeah. yeah. I think that the show does juxtaposition really well in the sense that offerings to the gods are these like performative bits. Yes. Of, like again trying to get in their good graces and trying to gain their favor. But Percy's offerings 
are quote unquote disrespectful because they're not to the gods, they're to his human mother who he lost. It shows his character so well in such a simple way that I think just tells you everything you need to know about him and about what his journey is going to be and how much he's going to push this sort of traditional culture to change the more that he understands why it is this way and the need for it to like change. It is impertinent in its own way. Like he has no idea how disrespectful it probably is to the gods to be doing this right now to try to talk to his mom. But it is so character enriching that he does it. Yeah. And that he doesn't for one second even think that it would be bad for him to do this. He's like, no, I'm doing this. Who's going to stop me? Yes. No respect for Western civilization. That's my boy. (laughs) The emotional journey of the scene is so fascinating too because he goes from being like, I'm catching up with my mom. I'm making friends. Luke is this good mentor to me into I'm angry. And that like, he doesn't verbalize this explicitly, but it's the thing of him going like, oh, I have a friend, parentheses, Luke, who has helped to guide me and I feel connected to somebody for the first time. And also... I'm realizing that our treatment, both me and you, my mom, who I'm talking to, at the hands of my dad, who I don't know, is wrong. And I am going to fix it because this is not acceptable. The implicit bridge driven by his interactions with Luke is so rich and delightful. Luke is a radical. And- he is a revolutionary. And he is influencing Percy. Yes, exactly. We also have to say it. He this says, scene is gorgeous. The shooting is oh, oh, it's so the like single moonbeam, the like lighting from the can, like two fires off in the distance that are always out of focus. The like shots up as he's like staring directly into the fire and like emoting, emoting for his life into <laughs> this fire. Also the jacket, you know, it's like a little chilly, you know, the, <laughs> it just adds so much. I agree. He's a little cold, but he had to come out and talk to his mom. Ignoring me is one thing, but he doesn't get to ignore you. I'm going to make him come down here. I'm going to make him see me. I'm going to make him see us both. While this music is playing with these like big, powerful, like minor diminished chords, making you feel like this mm-hmm. is his like villain moment, his little anti-hero turn. They really play a lot with the with the diminished chords and the scoring. I'm gonna go further with my thought from earlier and say that the reason why Percy di- doesn't join Luke at the end of this book is because he gets his mom back. Yep. That's the only yep. reason. I agree. And you know what? I agree. You know who Luke never got back? Luke never got back his mom. It's over in the small <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but I also feel like we're probably all in the same boat here that um, Luke apologism is at an all-time high. It's a problem. I was oh, always yeah. a Luke girl. We got flamed when we first started our podcast yeah. for being Luke apologists. He just needed therapy. We weren't <laughs> saying that he was perfect. We were saying that he made some points. Yeah. And that... His point should be considered. It's giving <laughs> Killmonger, you know? Yep. Correct. Episode eight is going to be really indicative of who I side with for the rest of this series. <laughs> He's going to have to do something violent and out of pocket. I am getting on that boat. You don't understand. I'm not even waiting. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm already on that boat, man. I go, you're driving Enter the boat. the Caribbean? <laughs> yeah. like, go on a little vacation to the sea of monsters you know? resort wear pack your hats pack your linens we're getting on that boat <laughs> oh my it's time for him to actually become the supreme lord of the bathroom we're vrooming we're in the bathroom we're with Larice. he just had this whole monologue about how he made friends and so then when he sees these people who clearly don't like him he is in this like positive frame of mind and he's like hey guys good at sleep huh and then they beat the poop out of him <laughs> Oh, he's he still so looks very tiny. small in the scene. Dior's performance is 
is quite good. Oh, it, it's it is giving you the right board. balance of like she's not yelling the whole time, but you are afraid of her, and she has like one or two moments of like extreme outbursts to let you know yeah. that this character is like not completely in control of her emotions and hasn't processed everything. Yes, it's great. It's not easy to play like sly, cool, powerful girl. Like that can get really like disingenuous yeah. very fast. You have to have an inherent level of powerful confidence to you as an actor in order to pull off like badassery like this. Mm -hmm. They push his head into the toilet and we get this brilliant shot from the perspective of the toilet where we see Mm -hmm. Walker like hovering (laughs) over as he is about to get, you know, a swirly and then the water powers. Unless you unless you really went frame by frame and you saw the water at the fountain in the first episode, this is really the first obvious portrayal of Percy's water powers. Like arms of water. It's giving Waterbending. Oh, yeah. And who is standing? And then we meet. <gasps> this <gasps> scene is phenomenal. At the little screening that we had, people applauded. People. And at cheered. the real screening we went to, people also and applauded. At the real screening, people <laughs> applauded. As they should have. <sighs> the casual leaning against the door frame with the little jacket on, because again, it's a little chilly. It's chilly. It's a little chilly at night. She's doing so little and is so unbothered yeah and this again like when we talk about writing that is fully original at this point in the books they have already known each other for a while like annabeth is his like private tutor she's giving him the lay of the land at camp instead luke does that instead luke's does that to establish that relationship and instead of that we get here this dramatic reveal of their relationship where she's exclusively responding in like yes i did no you can't i can explain no you can't i know you no you don't are you stalking me? Yes. Flawless. Talk about economy of language. Her delivery is incredible. I This performance is so good. I think a lot of people didn't imagine this for Annabeth because, not because it's not book accurate, because it is, but because people are so loaded up on other ideas and portrayals of the smart female friend in the trio. Yeah. Where the smart female friend in the trio is verbose and kind of over the top and has like a little bit of a nervous energy that manifests in telling people things all the time that they don't need to hear but i don't think that really was ever the way that annabeth was characterized she only says things that are necessary but she says things authoritatively confidently concisely she's in charge erica you said earlier she's in charge she talks like a general and that is like the energy that we have here that she's like on her back foot but she knows what's going on. She is in control of the conversation. Oh, Smart people don't over-explain. They yes. just know. It's Need very no basis. succinct and to the point. Yeah, exactly. And also they have the capacity to sort of expect you to get to where they're at on your own. Yes. I agree. Right? Like if they're having a conversation with you, they're like giving you enough so that you can get to like the conclusion on your own as well you know like they're not gonna mm-hmm. baby you or they're not gonna like yes. explain anything to you and i love that about her and when later she says you still don't get where you fit into all of this she's like expecting that he will have caught up with her at this point and he hasn't and she says i've been i've been waiting for something like this to happen because i think you can help me win capture the flag which of course we know is like maybe a little bit of a half truth i would say like a 40 percent truth maybe even 30 percent. yeah we cut back to camp from here <laughs> and it's uh luke explaining annabeth And she is so teeny tiny. Tiny, tiny general telling these tall people what to do. 
she standing with her arms crossed, like overseeing the drills as people practice their sword fighting for Capture the Flag. She's so tiny. When Luke is like, that's she's head counselor of the Athena cabin. I'm like, how is that possible? She's the teeniest person I've ever seen. She has the weight of the world on her shoulders. Look at all of that responsibility. Did she even get a childhood? Where is her loving home? I have all of these questions. Mm -hmm. And in one line of dialogue, Luke clears up probably my biggest concern for the series. Percy's like, whose side are you on? And Luke says, oh, her, always. She's my little sister. Yes. I will not be taking further questions at this time. But which then does tee us into a follow-up scene where Luke is finishing his explanation of everyone's relationships to each other. He doesn't talk about Grover, interestingly nope. and notably at this point, but he does talk about Annabeth and he talks about Talia. Or as they say in the show, Thalia. Thalia. I'll get used to it. <laughs> it's capture the flag time, basically. Mm-hmm. Chiron is <laughs> standing on this like hill and we're like in like, what is, it's like a waterfall basically, right? Like there's this big river, which is part of the capture the flag game. Like you have to like cross the river, right? Mm-hmm. With the other person's flag. One of the many river waterfalls of Long Mara. Island. I love the touch of having the paint across their armor. That was really cool. I believe Tish talked a lot about also about like the armor design. Like there was one specific piece of armor from antiquity that they like based all of this armor off of for Camp Half-Blood. And they had to hand, you know, design all of this for different sized kids, you know, from like little babies to older Mm -hmm. teenagers. They had to make the helmets and everything to fit just for this scene. Wow. The love, the care, the budget. It's budgeting. And the shots are gorgeous. They they really use some some good, good drones to get all of this done. The aerial moving shots, like, coming into both of the armies yes. as they stand on either side of the river. It's giving cinematic war movie. It's incredible. Yeah. Exactly. The scale. Yeah. It's like giving Gladiator. Hundreds of extras vibes. When they do their war cries and the Ares campers are, like, screaming, like, pounding on things, you know? And then the Athena side does, like, one, like, huh. That was character, right? That was world building. Yes. Yes, 100%. It's very much giving passion versus order. Chaos versus restraint. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between the Ares and the Athena. Annabeth to Luke, hey, today feel like a win and day to you. <sighs> the betrayal is going to betray. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. Gosh. Oh, this no. scene is so lovely. And I don't feel like we actually saw Luke and Annabeth interact that much before the betrayal in the books. And like we have this idea <clears throat> about the familial relationship that they have. But actually seeing how that manifests five years down the line after they've been at camp this whole time and Annabeth is like the star running the show. Yes. In charge of teams. To see her walk up to him and be and like for that history to be conveyed, but also for her to be like for the actual manifestation on this day of that to be that she's just going to delegate this big task to him, but that she's in charge and that she has a bigger strategy that he doesn't even know is so rich and fascinating. And I think it's going to set us up really so well. It foreshadows so much. Yes. And then it was very much like, we trust each other so deliberately that it's a no questions asked kind of thing. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. we know there's there's a bigger plan going on. Mm -hmm. We know that there's something else happening that, the other is not privy to. And then we trust yes. each other to to see that through and not question it. And then it's the reality in episode eight that's going to be Ugh. a twist to that and a knife to the back. It's it's just crazy. You're, what you're saying, Iko, is making me think about how Luke says in this episode, like, she is always six steps ahead of everybody. She sees the world differently. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like yeah. Luke thought Annabeth would have known? 
don't you think Luke would have been suspicious that Annabeth would have figured it out or like would have seen his betrayal coming? Like he would have had to be so smart to outwit her even for a week. Exactly. I think that it's it's a layered thought in particular, mostly because of their relationship, the trust that they have That's with what each it other. Is. Yes. It's relational. Trust makes you blind. Mm. Trust makes you blind. And we all know that Luke is her biggest blind spot before Percy. Yes. You know Correct. what I mean? Like it, it, it changes as, you know, the show goes on. But oh my God. <laughs> that I think is the other layer oh of the God. scene is that when you see the two of them interacting, Luke and Annabeth, you can see that Annabeth is in charge, but that there is in the way that they're playing it, this layer of artifice to it. We can see that she is smaller and more like childish and less emotionally developed compared to him, even yeah. as she is in charge and as she's giving these orders. And like, we can see that there are these additional layers of relational dynamics that no one is acknowledging because for the purposes of camp, they don't matter and they're not a part of the way that we structure things, but that they still are affecting the way that they relate to each other and are interacting. Like, I feel like you can see all of, all, all of the everything in this like short interchange to be like, Annabeth is really smart. They have a strong trusting relationship. And like, she is not like, if he were to do something, she wouldn't be prepared. Not because she's not smart. A lot of it is he's giving her the space to have that power. Exactly. Yes. She only has the standing because he's giving it to her. Yes. And it's crazy. It's so wild to think. Even in that he doesn't respond to that question. When she says, today feel like a winning kind of day to you, he just kind of like smirks yeah. and says, see you on the other side. It's very big brother. Like, I respect you, yeah. but at the same time, I am older. There yeah. is a definite yeah, yeah, yeah. power imbalance between the two of us. And he knows. He knows that he can with a lot of things because of her and her blind spot and, and, yeah. and just the fact that he can do no wrong in her eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when he does it, it's like, oh my God, like oh, how did I not God. see this coming? Which is really making me think about what we said about like Percy doesn't go on the boat because he gets his mom back. Annabeth doesn't get on that boat because yeah. she gets incremental validation from Athena that like reinforces her relationship <sighs> with her own mom, you know? Like mm. she loves and respects her mom so much that she would never get on that boat. Because as much as she feels abandoned, it's weirdly never abandoned by her mom. It's kind of mm -hmm. abandoned by her dad. Yeah. yeah. Right? So it's very much like, where do we find meaning? Yeah. yeah. Because she has, like, in order to feel like she, her life has any meaning, she has to be a child of Athena. She like, has that is to her be, identity. Exactly. Yes. Oh. We're cooking now. This episode okay. did too much. This episode, this episode did too much. Right? Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. We it's time finished. to capture some flags. We have to move on. Let's go. Percy and Annabeth walking. Percy tripping. The physicality of him being the two steps behind her of him. There's this moment where he's, after he trips, where he's putting the sword away. I don't know if anyone else clocked this. I was watching that and I was like, he, he's doing such a good job of being bad at that motion. Like there's something yeah. so charming and ungainly about, yeah. about the pause that he takes to complete the motion. The helmet hair. Everything. I mean, listen, as Percibeth truthers, we have to talk about Annabeth the gently strap. adjusting the strap on his armor. <laughs> I believe the word on the street <sighs> is that this was improvised. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because, like, it makes so much. She cannot have something out of place. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? Like, everything, if you're on her team, you got to look the part. You got to, like, commit to it. You but know, you got to be in order. Like this is right after he is imploring her, please make me look good in front of my dad. This is important to me. Yeah. And she yes. is like, 
like like emotionally i think what what is going on for this character is that like they she can't do that like she needs to make something happen she needs to <laughs> yeah. advance towards her she, goal of getting she needs him quest. to look goofy in order for her least, to like like win. the one thing she can do for him is like fix his strap so that when yeah. he's getting pummeled around by these kids before oh. ultimately you know like eventually showing out he can have his armor on, right? At the least. <laughs> it works on so many levels. Because yeah. I do think she cares about him as a person. Specifically, she is fascinated by him yes. in many different ways, both as a person and also as her ticket out of camp and onto a quest. But she also cares about him because he is in her army, period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Invisibility cap. Brilliant VFX. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. Cut to Percy ADHD montage. <laughs> Gets me every time. The flossing. This is what I mean when I say let Walker cook. Just leave the cameras rolling for like 15 minutes and see how much you can do. Carter, do you remember whose idea Walker says it was to floss? Because I was like, was that your idea? And he was like, no, it was like, it was Dan's idea or something. It was an adult with children who proposed this. That's even funnier. Like a writer. (laughs) That's even funnier. But I had to ask about the lizard because I have not stopped wondering where that lizard came from because it's very clearly a real lizard. And apparently it was a lizard that they brought to set with a full lizard wrangler. That lizard yeah, is an actor. there's a handler. They had a handler <laughs> just for that two-second shot and the absolute sheer joy on Walker's face petting that lizard yeah. has added years to my life. He looks really happy. And of course, we must remember that as all of this is happening, Annabeth is invisible like 10 feet away. I swear. Watching him pee in the woods. <laughs> we do also have to set up, to me, it was very important that we had like one shot of like really just like clean, good action of like Charlie letting these girls have it yes it's a sick fight sword fight we can't just set up that he's the best one and not show you that he is yeah the we best have to one. see his Literally, swordsmanship yeah we have to see the swordsmanship we need to see the work we need to know that luke is impressive and we get that don't worry annabeth has a plan percy's on it adhd montage yes and then clarice and aries cabin cronies fight which is brilliant first of all shout out to the blue cargo pants Oh, of course. Of course, the blue cargo pants. The lightning spear is brilliant. The sound effect of it crackling, it is roasty. It is toasty. It looks amazing. All of the fight choreo looks so good. It looks so good. Yeah. One of my favorite things in the world as a person is watching the behind the scenes clips of actors training for fight scenes in movies. It is my (laughs) personal dream. The only thing I care about in life is to get to do a movie where I get paid to learn fight choreo. Yes. Watching Amita Suman learn how to use those knives yes! to be in Shadow and Bone. <laughs> like, when they were training in, like, Budapest. to like, like, all of that. Watching Jason Momoa train for Dune. Trust me. Like, I'm online for the behind-the-scenes footage of this. And they look so good. It's, like, terrifying to me how good that they look. Yeah. Because the combination of the kids doing this and also their stunt people, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Dior Eats. Yeah. Dior Eats. The the use of the spear is so well designed. The slightly different hairstyle for battle that still shows you the like strongly defined curl pattern. I need a bang. I need one bang. I can't go into battle without like, a little bang. <laughs> face framing. Face framing Perfect. pieces. Face curled. framing. Correct. With a little low pony, so it uh. fits in the helmet. Uh. We didn't even shout out Annabeth's pigtails. Oh, oh yeah, oh, her braids. Oh, so cute. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Excellent fight sequence. Yes. Glory is nice, but revenge is more fun. Really setting up the Ares cabin. Also, it's a great setup of her dad. Yes. Clarice's dad, Ares, as he is introduced in the book. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. What is? What more is there to say? They're running. They're tripping. They're falling. Walker looks like he falls the equivalent of like 
a flight of stairs down a little cliff face. He had <laughs> to his John Wick moment. Yeah, falling down a flight of stairs. Um, <laughs> we get to the Long Island Sound, and the spear like comes at him, and it like gets wedged in his shield, and then it snaps in half. It's so precise. The sound of it breaking, oh my gosh, I broke my heart. And when you yeah. see it dawn on her face, and we don't even know that this is a gift from her dad. You know, that hasn't been mentioned. That is like mm-hmm. something that people who have read the books will know the importance of this. When her spear gets broken, the scream. The scream. Wow. I hope everyone gets the opportunity to watch this episode uh, somewhere with good sound design. Because this entire sequence, like when you have like a movie theater type of like thrum for the electric jolt of the spear and then the scream. A singular, a singular experience. A singular achievement in acting from a young ensemble. This scene and this scream utterly amazing, terrifying. As Walker has said in many interviews now, he was genuinely terrified in that moment of Dior. <laughs> she is about to punch him in the face, gripping him by the armor, which Annabeth adjusted. About to, <laughs> like, It's really giving you little punk vibes. When yeah. uh, Luke and Chris and the Athena cabin, the, the Athena team come in with the flag. Yay, the fight is over. Annabeth uninvisibles herself. And then it almost looks like she's going to like say something like an apology or like, don't you get that vibe that she's like about to say something vulnerable when she's like Percy and then pushes him into the water. That moment of confusing vulnerability to like catch him off guard so that she could effectively push him into the Mm. water. I I have to shout out her posture in the scene. I've said this every time I've seen this when she is walking down the bank of that river, like leaning back lightly neck aligned. She looks powerful. She looks so strong. Ah, It's a great scene, and it teases up. She pushes him to the water. It was made to be consumed, I think, also as a still frame. The way that they set, they, like, have the one super wide shot where you get the full mountains. The mountains of Long Island. Water all around him, and, like, like this wide shot. It's ready to be a poster, a wallpaper. Wow, wow, excellent. The scoring, where you combine like several of the different themes that we've been hearing leading up into this yes. point where it's giving the da, 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 like the, the like doubled phrases arpeggiating mm-hmm. together with like the the of like slow rising like melodic line like it's giving nautical but it's also giving adventure but also like grounded we're rounding a corner like the harmonic balance is changing oh it's so good They styled that wet hair right. The wet hair is like every piece perfectly in place so that he looks like a loser, but a loser that you could believe is the son of Poseidon. Yes. Did you mention the father of horses? No. We've also bothered us that every time we've seen the episode that the line in the book after he gets claimed is from like Chiron. Like everybody kneels and then Chiron goes like, you are son of Poseidon, Stormbringer, Earthshaker, father of horses. And they cut the father of horses part out of the TV show. Why? Justice for Blackjack. That's so rude. Justice for Rainbow. Horses are important. Horses are majestic. In my head, this is where the episode ended. Um, and I think when we were like doing mm. a breakdown of the series, this is where the episode ended. And I like, again, forgot about this. This is going to be so long. Um, but we continue the the voiceover from Chiron as he goes. We see the Poseidon cabin for the first time, which has these like, like prehistoric sea reptile skeletons hanging from the ceiling a la um, a museum of natural history or the Harvard Biosciences building. I want to know, I want to know like who was the interior designer for these cabins. I think it was Chiron. Do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of giving oh it was Chiron God. and Mr. D. They designed it together because husbands. Yeah. 
Sorry, sorry, remodel DIY project. We got bored once. Yeah, they were like HGTV. <laughs> also, like, I don't know if everyone noticed this. There was no bed in there. There is just a pool of water in the middle. Just a pool. Oh, God. Because it's supposed to be like, they, why would they put a bed in there? There isn't supposed to be anyone in there. It's supposed to be like a museum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so tiny in this big, big cabin, which is a description I remember very vividly from the books. They should have ended that episode when he got claimed. It's kind of painful that we don't get to sit with those feelings of what it actually means that he's the son of Poseidon before he's like ushered into this. Oh yeah, by the way, you gotta like go on this quest and like save the world. I think it is a genuinely difficult writing challenge for them to figure out where this like six minutes of stuff goes where they explain all of the like quest backstory, the beef between Zeus and Poseidon. I still might have put at the beginning of episode three, but I understand the logic. When we were doing our mapping that nobody ever got to hear about because we were going to do predictions episodes for every episode of the TV show and then we couldn't because of the strike. Um, but we will do it for season two. Mm-hmm. That was what we did. But I, I guess like if I was justifying the choice, it would be that Percy doesn't care that he's the son of Poseidon. Like for him, Correct. if the episode ended there, for it him, would place more mom. value. Yeah, but it's not about that. It's about his mom. So what we do end on is Grover rushing in as this quest is getting assigned to him and saying your mom is still alive, which is going to be what causes him to go on the quest. Yes. Jason Manzoukas is fully yelling at the small child Yelling. Walker. <laughs> yelling. In a scary, unhinged way. You will go on this quest. The fate of the world hangs in the balance. Percy is yelling back. Mm-hmm. He is yelling at this god. You are Poseidon's son. Walker Scobell screams, I am Sally Jackson's son. Yes. Percy is hesitant in the books, but in, in the books, it's like a secret where he's like, oh, I'm going to go on the quest, but it's because yeah. I like have a secret hunch that I can get my mom back. But I'm not going to tell anybody that that's a hidden ulterior motive. Here, he is like full, impertinent, persassy. The choice to have Grover be working behind the scenes to determine the truth that Sally is alive and to share mm-hmm. that with Percy, like that change, mm-hmm. does so much because A, it, you know, we wouldn't have known like the internal monologue yeah. of Percy that he has a hunch. It also just legitimizes Grover so much as a character, you know? Again, like what you're yes. saying, he's not groaning enchiladas on the ground. He is like active and trying to help Percy and like is yes. being set up as this like moral compass almost where like you know yeah. he was having a lot of gird when he was having to lie to Percy and now he is like no this is true this is right I cannot lie to him yes. I have to tell him the truth your mom is still alive he's like fighting Dionysus and Chiron to Literally. give Percy this information yeah. because that he feels so guilty and because he wants the book Percy's Rover. trust and he doesn't feel that it's right to lie yeah Percy's like alright when do we leave oh my god the way that they push in on Aryan and Walker's faces in this, just like huge eyes staring at each other. Oh, I'm so excited. I have goosebumps. <laughs> I think let's ask Iko since we've already kind of talked about Ooh. this. The closing question, first one, um, John Steinberg, showrunner and executive producer, mentioned that they are really making four shows here. One, a show for fans. Two, a show for people who've never read the books. Mm-hmm. Three, a show for kids. And four, mm-hmm. a show for adults. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that this episode has succeeded Ooh. at all of those four angles of filmmaking? It's an insane undertaking. It's how do you merge four completely different voices into one that's cohesive and makes sense? I think as a show for kids, it does a really great job at keeping you engaged and excited for the world, the characters, and the expansiveness of what could be and what is. I think as a show for adults, it plays really well on relationships and character. And you get to sort of 
feel what these characters are feeling, but also like we've been doing speculating on all of these very particular intentions that the characters have. A show for fans is all in the details. I think that the smaller a thing is, the more we're more likely to notice it. And they do an incredible job at not letting fan service overshadow story. Mm-hmm. Oh, and a show for new audiences. The explanation is very rock solid. There's no way that you could not know what's going on with the way that it's been explained. As a writer, I'm more of like the, I wish they would have taken more time and they would have been given more time mm-hmm. to show rather than tell us. But they didn't have the time. And I think that they're... Their voiceovers and their uh, their explanations coming from all these different characters is really interesting to sort of see the varying feelings and thoughts towards this world from a bunch of different characters that have drastically different thought processes and feelings towards mm-hmm. everything that's been going on. Absolutely. Thank you for that thorough answer, on screenwriter. I found this like original like spec that I wrote when I was like, 16 or 17 that was like the pilot for Percy Jackson. <gasps> I've had thoughts. <laughs> you knew it would be like TV before. before anyone knew it would be TV. My goal in life now is to be at a point in 10 years where I can show run Heroes of Olympus. Yes. I'm putting <gasps> out I go. Hello. I want. <laughs> you know where to find us. Listeners, you know how to make that happen? Yes. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. 10 years, baby. I literally, I literally have a list of people that I'm like you're coming to my writer's room like I know that you want to be there and I'm gonna add you to that list because like yes! oh my god <laughs> we have thoughts we've already discussed the last thing we have to do here today is award nominations so my Nodi award nomination for this episode today is going to be the inaugural blood curdling scream award for um Clarice's incredible blood curdling scream Carter what about you I think for me it is going to have to be best dramatic use of posture for our girl Leah, for specifically the excellence of the lean against the bathroom doorframe. And then the the like same good, good, like raised upright back posture as she's walking down that like little creek slope. The posture is right. The posture is so communicative. That's mine. I go. Mine is best money spent on product placement. For Diet for Coke. The Diet Coke. <laughs> the Diet Coke. <laughs> nice. I think what we're going to have everybody vote on on this episode of the Spotify poll should be best Walker Percy trip. Mm. There are several. We'll set up the nominations and you can vote. Yeah, best fall. Best fall. Best tumble. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Aiko, for recording with us for such a long time. We had a lot of thoughts. We'll see you for Heroes of Olympus. Yes, we'll see each other in 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.